1: wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What
0: follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities
0: so the freaks group is a wonderful place Uh, on Facebook for all the things. I
2: love the Freaks Group.
0: We talk about topics. We talk about new and exciting information we found out. We do memes. We talk about personal stuff.
2: We share recipes.
0: Sometimes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Foot tacos. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so this week, I had an opportunity to share a little personal story and have the Freaks give me some feedback. I just hit the blinds on the window. Give me some feedback on... What they feel about my emotional response to a situation.
2: All right. What was it? I I didn't see this.
0: Okay. So I was talking on the phone with my mom and my mom said to me, so-and-so received your Christmas card. I didn't get a Christmas card.
2: Did you send your mom a Christmas card? No. Did you send... Any Christmas cards yet? No. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So why did this person say they got... No idea. Were they just trying to upset your mom, maybe?
0: I don't think so. Okay. I was wondering. (laughs) But either way, the the response of, I didn't get a Christmas card, makes me never want to send anyone ever a Christmas card (laughs) ever again. So
2: it's all or nothing. It's
0: all or nothing. Uh Like, I cannot handle... Uh, competition on Christmas cards. What if someone gets like a high quality Christmas card and someone gets one of those free ones I get from the Arbor Day Foundation? <laughs> what if someone likes mm-hmm. the polar bear on their Christmas card, but this person doesn't like reindeer? Mm-hmm. Uh, my niece, Casey, hates deer. So what if I accidentally send her a Christmas card with a deer on it?
2: Yeah, and the, and the likelihood of that is pretty high. Uh,
0: you know, it's just a lot of pressure. I understand. And it costs a lot of stamps and I only have so many of those dinosaur stamps left and I love them. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's one of those things that I hoard rather than use. And now I'm like, well, is it even worth it? I don't know.
2: So if you don't get a Christmas card from Kat this year, you can blame her mom. (laughs) (laughs) That's the true spirit of the holidays.
0: (laughs) No, I want my dino stamps. (laughs) Just for me.
2: All right, you ready for a story? Yes, please. This is the story about the day the clowns cried. They cried when they were beaten within an inch of their life by drunken firemen at a Canadian brothel. Oh, no. Let me, <clears throat> let me explain.
0: <laughs> yes, please do.
2: It was a warm day in the summer of 1855. Toronto at the time was still a very small city, relatively small. It was like 40,000 people. But it was growing quickly. In fact, the railroad came into the area and its population would double over the next two decades. But at the time, it was still kind of a rough-and-tumble pioneer town, full of brothels and drinking establishments.
0: The foundation of any good
2: town. No wonder it's a thriving metropolis today. In fact, at the time, there were 68 taverns on just one street. Wow! You couldn't walk more than 1,200 feet without hitting another another tavern. The city itself had about 152 taverns in addition to 203 beer shops. Nobody knows for sure how many brothels there were, but there were lots of them. So the circus had come to town a few days earlier. It was a circus from the United States. It was called S.P. Howe's Star Troop Menagerie and Circus.
0: Okay, that's not a good name. No,
2: it's hard to get that on on a marquee. S.P. Howe's Star Troop Menagerie and Circus. Now, it was a pretty good-sized circus.
0: I'm sorry. When you said menagerie, it just reminded me of when I had my apartment, you know, when we first started, like, spending time together. Yeah. And I had um, the two cats, Albert and Shitty, and then the bird, Lupang. Right. And I called them my menagerie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Aww. Mm. Anyway, they had uh, horseback trick riders, they had acrobats, exotic animals from giraffes to elephants, and of course, there were clowns, lots and lots of clowns. Mm. And by all accounts, they weren't the kind of clowns you messed around with. These were a drunk, rowdy lot of clowns. (laughs) So it was a Thursday night. The circus had just performed several sold-out shows that day. After all, in a town this size, you rarely got to see a show this big. After the last show, the clowns thought they'd blow off some steam and head out to one of the city's many brothels for a night of drinking and clown sex. <laughs> <laughs> so they randomly picked a brothel near the corner of what's now King and Jarvis in Toronto and prepared for a night of merriment. <laughs> Is it true what they say about the size of a clown's shoes?
0: So at a brothel, I wonder if the same rules apply. Like, how many <laughs> clowns can you fit in? Yeah, well,
2: yeah. <laughs> to a car. But things quickly went off the rails because, you see, this particular brothel was the prime hangout of a local volunteer fire brigade called the Hook and Ladders. Now, firefighters in those days weren't part of a central, public, or civically run fire department. Right. There were numerous fire brigades. They were all volunteer. And when a fire did break out, all of these companies of volunteers would race to the site and try to get there first so they could call dibs.
0: Get out of here. This is our fire.
2: Yeah. These horse-drawn engines would come screeching up in front of a fire, and then if they were competing fire brigades, they would end up fighting each other while the buildings burned to the ground. In fact, that had happened just a couple of weeks earlier on Church Street in Toronto. Firemen were rioting in the street.
0: They were firefighting?
2: They were firefighting. (laughs) So the police show up, and instead of breaking the brawl up, they joined in. Uh, The firemen were charged with assault in the battle that's become known as the Fireman's Riot. Uh, The hook and ladders, basically what I'm trying to say, were not the kind of guys you wanted to get into a rumble with, in a brothel or anywhere else for that matter. (laughs) So the scene is set. You've got a large group of drunken disorderly clowns, and an angry contingent of territorial flame-dousing Canadians. So you mix in alcohol and women, you got the makings of an epic brawl. Now, there's different stories on how the fight actually broke out at the brothel, but it seems likely it was a combination of one particularly loudmouth clown who cut in line and knocked a fireman's hat off.
0: I'm picturing John Wayne Gacy and Pat Oswald.
2: <laughs> Regardless of how the fight started, the clowns kicked some volunteer firefighters' ass. Um, at least two of the firefighters were seriously injured and had to be dragged out of the brothel by the hook and ladder crew. <laughs> Once the hook and ladder crew uh, had retreated, the clowns had a great time drinking and having clown sex.
0: Good for them.
2: But the fight wasn't over. You know, those hook and ladder guys, they're not going to go away quietly. The thing is, the firemen had lots of friends in high places in Toronto in those days. At the time, Toronto was pretty much run by a group of Protestant elites. They were members of an organization called the Orange Order.
0: It's like the Spanish Inquisition.
2: <laughs> Nobody <laughs> expects the Orange Order.
0: Now I picture John Wayne Gacy, Patton Oswald, and John
2: Cleese. So the Orange Order hung out at the Orange Lodge and made sure that the Orange Men got all the important jobs in the city. Now, the Orange Order, let me give you a little background on them. They were formed in the 1600s, the late 1600s. The conservative Protestant group traditionally opposed to Irish nationalism and republicanism. Uh, Critics accuse the order of being sectarian and supremacist. As a strict Protestant society, it doesn't accept non-Protestants as members unless they convert and adhere to the principles of Orangeism, nor does it accept Protestants that are married to Catholics. Orange marches through Irish Catholic neighborhoods are controversial and have often led to violence. So in Toronto, at this time, it was pretty much run by Orange men. All the police were Orange men. Same with the firefighters. And even though at the time they focused on beating up Catholics, they were occasionally willing to make an exception and pummel a clown or two. <laughs> so the day following the brothel incident... It happened to be a Friday the 13th, interestingly. A crowd began to gather around the Espy House Star Troop Menagerie and Circus. This crowd was angry and orange. The circus had set up at uh, what was called the Fair Green, which was a big grassy space near the waterfront. When the circus set up, local farmers and merchants also set up their stalls nearby to capitalize on the crowds. Sure these people were told to take their stalls down and clear out because shit was about to go down. Oh. Now, even before any violence broke out, word reached the police that tensions were growing down on the waterfront. So the chief of police, whose name was Samuel Sherwood, was, you guessed it, an orange man. So when he heard about the trouble going on on the waterfront, he was really slow to react, kind of dragged his feet as long as he could. And then he just sent a small handful of men to kind of check things out and not really do anything. Just, you know, we just want to be seen there. So by the time they got there, the fight was in full swing and people were throwing rocks at the circus folk. They were pelting them with rocks and garbage. They were able to hold them off for a little while, but it wasn't long before the crowd grew to a size that overwhelmed the circus folk. And as if on cue, the hook and ladders arrived at this point. And then all hell broke loose. They ended up storming the circus with axes, overturning stalls and carts, pulling down tents, and setting the big top on fire. The firemen then proceeded to beat the clowns to a bloody pulp. no. (laughs) The circus folk, uh, in an attempt to save their lives, dove into the lake for safety. It was an ugly scene. And police did very little to calm the tensions. It wasn't... Until the mayor himself showed up that things started to calm down a little bit. He came to the fair green and kept a fireman from killing a clown with an axe. He actually pulled the axe out of the fireman's hand as he was about to kill a clown with an axe. He then called in the militia to take control, finally. Soon things calmed down and the circus people climbed out of the lake and grabbed all of their belongings that they could (laughs) salvage and got the hell out of Toronto. (laughs)
0: I'm sorry, now that that you've said the mayor was there, now I'm picturing John Wayne Gacy, Patton Oswalt, John Cleese, and Bill Murray.
2: This pretty much sums it up, I think. (laughs) The police had done nothing but watch. Even the police chief, Sherwood, himself was there, but the only thing he was able to claim that he did was stop rioters from uh, setting fire to the cages the animals were in, so at least he did that. That's good. There were only 17 people charged in the riot. Only one was convicted. Wow. Yeah. Seems the police were, who were present claimed they couldn't remember any of the Orangemen that they had seen there. This was not uncommon. Most people considered it a cover-up, which clearly it was. And it was only a couple of months after that that another Protestant versus Catholic riot happened and Chief Sherwood's memory was, again, a bit fuzzy as to which Orange men were involved.
0: That's so weird because in my head, like everything that I know, by the way, about police and firefighter relations comes from Brooklyn Mm Nine-Nine and they don't like each other. So (laughs) that's just just how it works in my brain.
2: I think being a member of the Orange Lodge... Superseded? Superseded any type of... uh, civic rivalry got it and about the same time he was criticized when he uh, let a bank robber suspect go and yes he was also an orange man so at this point people are thinking this is getting ridiculous and there was a mayoral election coming up and ultimately a liberal reform party candidate won the city council and local politicians called for deep reforms to the way the toronto police uh, force had operated so an investigation ensued, and when it was over, the entire system was overthrown. Oh, good. Every single police officer in the city was fired, and a new force was created from scratch. However, half of the police officers that got fired got their jobs back, and it still took another hundred years before the orange stranglehold on Toronto's power was finally broken.
0: Wow. Wow.
2: However, the foundations of Toronto's current modern police force were laid by a group of drunken clowns and (laughs) axe-wielding firemen.
0: I guess that's just how you get things done.
2: (laughs) You do whatever it takes, I guess. My information came from Toronto Dreams, Spacing Toronto, and Wikipedia. I wonder, seriously... When the clowns were at the brothel, if they were there in like, full makeup and their baggy pants and stuff.
0: What's with the frown, buddy? <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, Sex worker is involved with a clown in an intimate act. And just as it was about to reach its climax, the clown
0: squirts her in the face with a flower on his lapel. And
2: now, that thing in the middle. There are a number of strange symbiotic relationships in nature. Few stranger than the one between wolves and ravens. Wolves and ravens have a very special relationship. Ravens will mimic the sounds of wolves to attract them to carcasses that the birds can't break open. When the wolves are done eating, the
1: ravens then swoop in and get the leftovers. We put the hoe in holidays. This is with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth.
2: So a couple of episodes ago, we mentioned uh, that we have a turkey vulture problem here. Some
1: people
0: say it's a problem.
2: In downtown Orlando, where there are probably a, a swarm of like 70, 80, 100 turkey vultures that just fly over the city and vomit on the buildings.
0: (laughs) We got a message from Alice that says, when I lived in Fort Wayne, Indiana, they released some peregrine falcons to the area as the tall buildings mimic their natural habitat. They also kept the pigeon population down too, which had been growing out of control. There were a few downsides to this, one of which happened when I was walking down the street downtown and I heard a wet sound Behind me, oh, no. I turned and looked down at the sidewalk where a half-eaten pigeon corpse was laying. <laughs> oh. The woman walking behind me and I just stared at each other and then looked at the empty sky. We both kind of shrugged and went on about our day. <laughs> Another time, a total jackass in my neighborhood used to steal my parking spot all the time. He stole my parking spot one morning, and when I came out, I noticed. That a falcon had caught a pigeon and was sitting there in a tree above his car, happily dropping blobs of pigeon flesh, guts, and bloody feathers onto the roof of his very expensive uppity-yuppity vehicle.
2: That's hilarious.
0: <laughs> thanks, Alice.
2: <laughs> and thanks, Falcons. Tell me a story.
0: Last year, we lost American treasure Katherine Johnson. But the release of her memoir after her death gives us a glimpse into the life and mind of this incredible woman. Catherine Johnson was born Creola Catherine Coleman on August 26, 1918 in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, to Joyletta Roberta and Joshua McKinley Coleman. Johnson showed strong mathematical abilities from a very early age and from her earliest childhood memories. She loved to count things. The number of dishes in the cupboard, the number of steps on the way to school— Johnson says she got her math ability from her father, who only had a sixth grade education. But she said daddy's mind was quick with numbers. He could add, subtract, and do complicated problems in his head. He could also look at a tree and instinctively know how many logs he could get from it. Wow. Which is a very cool talent. She said she couldn't wait to get to high school and take algebra and geometry.
2: That's a very foreign concept to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Catherine's father also taught her that she was equal to anyone, no matter what the laws or traditions said. They were a black family. And because of the situations in the United States at the time, schooling in their area only went up to sixth grade. So her family had to move for part of the year so that she could attend a high school in another city. Wow. But by 13, she was attending high school on the campus of historically black West Virginia State College.
2: 13 years old. I had just stopped wetting the bed.
0: As a college student, Catherine took every course offered by the college. Multiple professors mentored her, including W.W. Shefflin Clater, who was the third African-American to receive a Ph.D. in mathematics. Clater actually crafted and added new mathematics courses just for Catherine. Oh, my God. She graduated with highest honors with degrees in mathematics and French at the age of 18. In 1939, she and two other black students were selected by the president of West Virginia State College, again, a historically black institution, to attend the previously all-white West Virginia University in Morgantown. Though it was desegregated, it's the U.S. in the 30s slash 40s. So one of her white advisors at West Virginia University asked her, what do you think you're actually going to do with one of these advanced degrees? Her answer was, I'll do what you do. And the comparison of him to her was so outrageous to him that he became irate. She didn't understand why he got so mad. She said, I hadn't intended to insult him, but it really didn't bother me either. Again, Catherine was raised with this idea that she was just as good as anybody. After a year of schooling, she decided to leave and start a family with her first husband, then James Goble. She returned to work only when her three daughters got a little bit older. But not surprisingly, um, research opportunities for black female teenager mathematicians were not great.
2: Yeah, I can imagine.
0: So she took a job as a school teacher in Virginia. Until 1952, when at a family gathering, a relative told her about an open position at the all-black West Area Computing Section at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. It was the Langley Laboratory.
2: is Is this one of the women from that movie that we saw? What was the name of that movie?
0: Yes, Hidden Figures. I
2: love that movie.
0: So Hidden Figures came out in 2016. It was based on a book of the same title by Margaret Lee Shetterly. And if you've not seen it, please watch it. It's so good. Langley had been established by the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics in 1917. In 1935, it began hiring white women with mathematics degrees to relieve its male engineers of the tedious work of crunching numbers by hand. Of course, the white women were paid much less than the men. In June of 1941, as the nation was preparing for war, the president, Roosevelt, signed Executive Order 8802, which barred racial discrimination in the defense industry. So Catherine began to work at Langley in the summer of 1953. She was known as a human computer for her tremendous mathematical capability and ability to work with space trajectories. With such little technology and recognition at the time, this was very important stuff. And for some time in the mid-century, the Black women were who were computers, were subjected to double segregation. Of course, they were consigned to separate office, dining, and bathroom facilities because they were black, but also kept separate from the much larger group of white women who worked with NASA mathematicians.
2: It's unbelievable.
0: Now, by the time Catherine had arrived, the company cafeteria had already undergone some desegregation, but the separate bathrooms remained. And quite by accident, Catherine broke that color line. The agency's bathrooms for black employees were labeled, you know, blacks only, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But the white bathrooms, because white was considered the default, weren't labeled. And so Catherine had been using an unlabeled bathroom for some time. When she realized her mistake that she should have been using the black bathrooms, she was already in the habit of using the white bathroom. So that's just (laughs) what she was going to do.
2: Plus, they were closer, if I recall, from from the movie, anyway. From the movie. Yeah, right. Yeah.
0: Um, really, no one gave her any crap about it, so she just kept using the white bathrooms from then on. Two weeks into her new job, Dorothy Vaughn assigned her to a project in the Maneuver Loads branch of the Flight Research Division, and Catherine's temporary position became permanent. Dorothy Vaughn was hired in 1943 with the wartime need for human computers that was greater than ever. And she was one of the first women trained in mathematics there. Now, the Flight Research Division occupied a huge hangar on the Langley grounds, and Catherine was the only black member of the team there. She helped calculate the aerodynamic forces on airplanes. In 1957, she provided some of the math for the 1958 document, Notes on Space Technology, which was a series of 1958 lectures given by engineers in the Flight Research Division and Pilotless Aircraft, Divi- <laughs> Pilotless Aircraft Research Division. This episode is asking a lot of my <laughs> speaking skills. <laughs> Catherine made it possible for women to attend the agency's scientific briefings. They were closed door affairs reserved for the men on staff. But when one day she wanted to attend a meeting, she walked in. And, you know, of course, there was a little hubbub about it. And she said, is there a law against me being here? And of course, there wasn't. And everyone was like, no. And so they all kind of just agreed, like, all right, I guess you can stay. (laughs) And so from then on, women were allowed in the meetings.
2: What a set of balls or ovaries.
0: By the early 1960s, NASA was under great pressure to launch an astronaut. It was the assignment of Catherine's team to develop the launch window to determine where it was going to land. Now, their work was secret, and at times it was secret even from the mathematicians themselves. Catherine was quoted as saying, sometimes you had to read Aviation Week to find out what you'd done the week before.
2: That's incredible. So it was kind of like a blind research project.
0: Right. She routinely logged 16-hour days. She did trajectory analysis for Alan Shepard's May 1961 Mission Freedom 7. America's first human spaceflight? In 1960, she and engineer Ted Skopinski co-authored Determination for Azimuth Angle to Burnout for Placing a Satellite Over a Selected Earth Position, a report which laid out the equations describing an orbital spaceflight in which the landing position of the spacecraft is specified.
2: Pretty advanced
0: stuff. Pretty advanced stuff. But in the early days of NASA, women weren't allowed to put their names on reports. So when she did this report with Ted Skopinski, he had to go out of town. But the supervisor at the time didn't want Catherine finishing the report. Eventually, Ted was like, Catherine should finish the report. She's done most of the work anyway. I'm heading out. Bye. Mm. So Ted left Catherine with the report and left their supervisor with really no choice. Catherine finished the report, put her name on it, and that was the first time a woman in that division had her name on something.
2: Go, Catherine. And also, go, Ted.
0: Go, Ted. Come on. Now, in 1962, as NASA prepared for the orbital mission of John Glenn, Johnson was called upon to do the thing that she became best known for. The computers had been programmed with the orbital equations that would control the trajectory of the capsule in Glenn's mission from liftoff to splashdown. Mm. But the astronauts were still really kind of freaked out by putting their lives in the hands of electronic hands, if you will, the calculating machines were prone to hiccups and blackouts, and they kind of didn't love the idea of computers, mechanical computers, being in charge of their lives. The complexity of the orbital flight had required the construction of a worldwide communications network, linking tracking stations around the world to IBM computers in Washington, Cape Canaveral, and Bermuda. So as part of the pre-flight checklist, Glenn, freaked out again by his life being in the hands of machines, said, get the girl. He meant Katherine Johnson. He wanted her to run the numbers through the equations And if they matched up with what the computer said, then fine,
2: we're good. It's kind of the reverse of what we do today. If we do a project by hand.
0: Then we run it through a computer to double check. To make
2: sure that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I understand the whole... Back then, trusting a computer must have taken a huge leap of faith. Right. Because there weren't really computers prior to the experience that they were having. And there was no way to know for sure how accurate it was going to be. Yeah,
0: and because they did have problems with the computer on a regular basis. You wanted a person to say you're good to go, and that's what happened. Catherine said the numbers were right, and Glenn said then I'm ready to go. It worked out okay. From 1958 until her retirement in 1986, Johnson worked as an aerospace technologist, moving during her career to the spacecraft controls branch. She calculated the trajectory for the May 5th, 1961 space flight of Alan Shepard. She calculated the launch window for his 1961 Mercury mission. She plotted backup navigation. Johnson later worked directly with digital computers, so her ability and reputation helped establish confidence in the new technology. In 1971, 1980, 1984, 1985, and 1986, Catherine got the NASA Langley Research Center Special Achievement Award.
2: That's quite a run.
0: (laughs) She authored or co-authored 26 research reports. She spent 33 years at Langley and said she loved going to work every single day. After retiring from NASA... Mrs. Johnson became a public advocate for mathematics education, speaking widely in visiting schools. She became West Virginia State College's Outstanding Alumnus of the Year in 1999. She received 13 honorary doctorate degrees. (laughs) She was cited as a pioneering example of African-American women in STEM. Two NASA facilities have been named in her honor and she was included on the BBC's list of 100 women of influence worldwide in 2016, not long before President Barack Obama presented her with the Presidential Medal
2: of Freedom. Good Lord, she's running out of space for those awards.
0: Ah, space. Catherine died at a retirement home in Newport News in 2020 at the age of 101. Good Lord,
2: what a life.
0: Just this year, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. And again, I cannot stress it enough. If you haven't seen Hidden Figures or read the book, absolutely incredible. It's inspiring. I got most of my information from the Philadelphia Inquirer, from the New York Times, Wikipedia, of course, NASA, and Nature.com.
2: Wow, Catherine, what a life.
0: What an incredible story, right?
2: And now we have to go watch Hidden Figures again. I'm
0: not against it.
2: Also want to take a moment to thank our latest uh, patrons.
0: Welcome, Deb, Mike, Kim, Melissa, Steph, and Emily.
2: You are now official members of the Order of Freaks. You can join as well by going to uh, our website, theboxofoddities.com. Support us on Patreon. The link is right there. We'll see you next time.
0: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
2: Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak.
1: And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. Theboxofoddities.com. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.
0: Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friendly neighbourhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries,
1: murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your
0: podcasts.